0: Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5? We are currently in a section in our study through Matthew's Gospel that runs from chapter 5 to the end of chapter 7, a section commonly known as the Sermon on the Mount. Now, by way of just very quick review, chapter 5, verses 3 through 10 describe the character of the righteous, Christians. Verses 11 and 12 describe the reaction of the world against the righteous, and verses 13 through 16, which we studied last time, describe the influence of the righteous on the world, salt and light. Now, starting in verse 17 and running through the end of chapter 5, Jesus begins to talk about, to define true righteousness. And he does it by defending the law as God's perfect standard of righteousness. Now, he does this also in part by setting forth God's original intent for the law and its proper interpretation in the light of all the misconceptions and misinterpretations that have been fostered and taught for years by the scribes and Pharisees. This is the longest section in the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus prefaces it with verses 17 to 20. Let's read those. He said, do not think, now he's talking to his disciples here, all right, do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, folks, this is nothing new to us. We have read this passage many, many times before. But you've got to put yourself in their sandals for a second. The guys who were disciples of Christ, who had grown up in Judaism all their life as observant Jews, hearing this for the first time, this was the doctrinal equivalent of a WMD. Because Jesus drops this bomb on them and it blows to pieces, literally, all their misconceptions, all their preconceived ideas about the law of God, which they have been taught over all the years of their lives by the scribes and Pharisees and rabbis. All of it was wrong. And Jesus is going to just literally blow out of the water these misconceptions. Now, don't misunderstand. He is not destroying the law. He wants them to know right up front he didn't come to destroy God's law. In fact, he would be the only one in history to truly fulfill the law. And yet what he's about to say to them is going to be so radically different from what they were used to hearing from the scribes and Pharisees. He would seem like he was anti-law. He would seem like a radical, a revolutionary, somebody who was teaching them to abandon God's law, and then to embrace a new religious system which he himself was advocating. You say, "Well, wait a minute, wasn't he doing that very thing? Wasn't Christianity a whole new system? No. Christianity was the fulfillment of Judaism. All the promises God gave to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all these promises found their fulfillment in Christ in the new covenant. Jesus didn't say, I have come to replace. He said, I have come to fulfill. All right, you have to think of Judaism as the root and Christianity as the fruit, but it's all one tree. That's why we say Judeo-Christianity. We don't divorce the one from the other, because in, in Judaism, God gave the promises. In Christianity, in Christ, he fulfilled the promises. So Jesus didn't come to bring them something completely different. He came to fulfill what God had promised in the Old Covenant. You see, the main problem, and there were many problems with the teachings of the scribes and Pharisees, but The main problem when it came to their teachings with regard to the law was that they had removed it from the realm of the human heart where God had rooted it, and had reduced God's law to a set of purely external rules, regulations, and ceremonies, which the scribes and Pharisees believed they were keeping. And as such, they believed that the law was making them righteous in God's eyes. They had dragged the law so low that they actually thought they were keeping it. And what Jesus was going to do in this section is he was going to elevate it back to where God originally intended it to be. The Bible clearly teaches that the law was not intended by God to make us righteous, or in other words, it was not intended by God to save us and to get us into heaven. I'm going to read you several scriptures that just touch on these that show us that God uh, never gave the law to save us. That was not God's intention. In Acts chapter 13, verse 39, Paul the Apostle says, And by Him, Jesus Christ, everyone who believes in Him is justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. Justified means saved, going to heaven. I mean, what Jesus came to bring was a righteousness that no man or woman could ever attain to. It's what Paul would call the righteousness that comes from God by faith. Something the law could never do. Romans 3.20, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh, no person will be justified in the sight of God. Galatians 2.16, Knowing that a man or woman is not justified by the works of the law. When When you think of the works of the law, and I'm going to define this in greater detail in a moment, just think of the Ten Commandments for right now, okay? Just right now, just to get your mind around this, when the Bible says you're not justified by the works of the law, think of the Ten Commandments, just for a moment. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Listen, for by the works of the law, by the Ten Commandments, nobody is justified. Nobody gets to heaven. You're saying we shouldn't keep the commandments? No, I'm not saying that. Jesus said, if you love me, do what? Keep my commandments, right? It's just that those commandments don't get you into heaven. We keep them because we are saved and on our way to heaven. And one more, Galatians 2.21. Paul says, I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, Christ died in vain. If we could get to heaven by just working hard and keeping the commandments of God, why did Jesus have to die on the cross, right? I mean, people don't realize that. I mean, think about it. Paul is saying if there was a way that we could earn heaven by just being really good and, and, and being real meticulous at keeping God's commandments, then why did Jesus have He died in vain then. He, we didn't need his death. Of course, we know that's absolutely untrue. Now, don't misunderstand through these scriptures. God is not against the law. God is not a lawless God. On the contrary, God is a God of laws. He makes this clear throughout the entire pages of scripture. The word law is namas in the Greek and Torah in the Hebrew. It appears 300 times in the Old Testament, 223 times in the New. And so the importance of the concept of law in the Bible is unmistakable. And listen, the perfection of God's law is irrefutable. The psalmist said in Psalm 19, verse 7, the law of the Lord is what? Perfect, converting the soul. And Paul said in Romans chapter 7, verse 12, therefore the law is holy and the commandment is holy and just and good. Folks, there is nothing wrong with God's law. It is His perfect standard of righteousness. And if man could keep that law perfectly his whole life, then the law would earn him salvation. But the problem was not with the law. The problem was with us, right? Because when Adam blew it in the garden, he blew it for all of his posterity. We all were born as fallen sinners. How are fallen and perfect sinners ever going to live at the level of perfection once again? We can't because we're sinners. So the problem was not with the law of God. The problem is with our ability or inability, I should say, to keep it. Now people say, well, yes, but I try to keep most of it. I'm not perfect, but I think God will understand that I try to keep most of His commandments, and therefore, He'll let me into heaven, right? Look, don't wait till you see Him before you ask Him that question, okay? Let's deal with it right now. Look, there's a fallacy that I hear all the time today, but there's a fallacy with that line of thinking. The fallacy behind that thinking is you only have to break one law your entire life to be a lawbreaker and thereby guilty before God. James said very clearly, In chapter 2, verse 10, for the person who keeps all of the laws except one is as guilty as a person who has broken all of God's laws. He said, I don't get that. All right, let me put it in a quick illustration I've used before just so you understand this, okay? We think that even though we've broken God's laws, if we work real hard and do extra good things, somehow that will negate all the times I broke the law. That's the, the general thinking today. But let's look at that in a regular court of law. Forget God's divine court. Let's look at a regular court of law for a minute. All your life, you've lived a good life. You've been a, been a law-abiding citizen. One day, I don't know, you, you get a little crazy and you rob a convenience store. You get caught. You go before the judge. Here's your line of defense. Your Honor, I know I'm guilty. I was caught red-handed. But look, this is the first time I've ever broken the law. Certainly, all the good things that I've done before that point would have negated this one transgression. What do you think the judge is going to say to you? What, do you think you get points for keeping the law? You ought to keep the law. If you break it, you need to be punished. See, everybody who breaks God's laws needs to be punished. Of course, the eternal punishment is hell. Well, I'm not as bad as some other person. Well, sure, they will suffer a greater judgment in hell than maybe you will, but you're still going to hell under your own works and things like that. Therefore, folks, the law could never save us. It could only condemn us. And, of course, God knew that. That's why he never gave the law to make a person righteous. He gave the law to show people their sinfulness. Why? So they would stop putting their faith in themselves to get to heaven and would fall to their knees and cry out to God for his grace. Let me read you three more scriptures that deal with the idea that the law was not intended to make us righteous. It was intended to show us our sinfulness. Romans 3.20, Paul said, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh, nobody, is going to be justified in God's sight, for by the law comes the knowledge of sin. For by the law comes the knowledge of sin. Romans 7, verse 7, Paul said, I would not have known sin except for the law. In Galatians 3, 24 and 5, Therefore the law was our tutor, school teacher, to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we no longer need a tutor. In other words, the law's job was to show me my sin, was to get me to stop putting faith in myself to get to heaven, to show me that no matter how hard I worked, I was always going to sin, every day I sinned. And those sins kept piling up, and if one was enough to keep me out of heaven, good heavens, what about all of them that I've accumulated over my lifetime? What kind of punishment am I going to have in hell because of that? See, the law was not designed to make me righteous. It was designed by God to show me how sinful I am, how much I blow it. What would that do? It drives me to Christ for salvation by grace through faith. And once the law does that, the law is no longer needed in my life. It's done its work. Look, the scribes and Pharisees had reduced God's law to a set of outward rules and regulations which they taught had to be kept if a person was going to be righteous and thereby earn heaven. And now here comes Jesus. I love the Lord, you know. He just shattered all these cultural biases and all these doctrinal misconceptions, right? Here comes Jesus. And now through his teaching, he's going to destroy that concept that you could even keep the law for righteousness, And he's going to drive the law back into the heart where it belongs, where God intended it to be. And in doing so, he's going to set the standard back where God intended it to be, so high that everyone who had an open heart would realize that keeping the law perfectly in the heart as well as outwardly with my life every single day of my life was absolutely impossible for any human being to do, which in turn would cause them, all of us, to abandon all self-effort, self-reliance. is that what religion is, by the way? What is religion? Religion is a set of rules and ceremonies and regulations by which if I obey these things, I will earn salvation. It's putting confidence in my strength, myself. And God wants us to know that, look, if you're going to be saved, you have to come to the end of yourself. You have to be poor in spirit, broken of all self-effort, self-confidence, self-reliance, that I'm good enough, I can earn heaven, watch me work, God. You know, I go to church every day, and I'm always helping in the soup kitchens, and I'm doing this, and I'm doing that, see? And Jesus said, look, no man ever ascended to heaven by his good works. That's why the Son of Man came down, because we couldn't get there through our good works. Jesus had to come down and die in our place to end all this self-effort to cause us to fall to our knees and beg God for another way. Lord, I realize now, see, the Pharisees, as I said, had dragged God's standard of righteousness all the way down so low they thought they were keeping it. I mean, imagine this. Imagine I set the standard for getting into heaven at about three feet high. All right? Even I can get over that, okay? But God originally put the standard of righteousness, let's say, 6,000 miles up. Well, you drag it down low enough to give people the impression that through the religious works they can make it into heaven. If you elevate it back where God originally intended it to be, now they look at that and go, there's no way I can get up there. There's no way. God, help me. Is there any other way for me to get to heaven? Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. Now, before we get into this study this morning, let me define the law more clearly so that you can understand what Jesus is talking about when he talks about the law. The law was given by God to Moses and ultimately to the nation of Israel in the wilderness after God had delivered them out of their slavery in Egypt, right? He delivers them out of Egypt with a mighty outstretched arm, and he brings them into the wilderness, and there he proposes a covenant with them, which we'll talk about more in a moment. The terms of the covenant was the law, and the law contains 613 commandments. Forget the 10, 613 248 were positive, things that God said his people must do, like loving him with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and honoring their fathers and mothers, etc. 365 of these commandments were negative, things that God said his people were forbidden from doing, like worshiping false gods and stealing, lying, committing adultery, and so on. The law of God, all 613 now, were divided into three parts or divisions. You had the civil law, the ceremonial law, and the moral law. The civil or judicial law contained the laws that God gave Israel for the function of the nation. These were civil laws for the government of society and punishment of any lawbreakers. Every civil society has to have laws, right? Or it's not going to be a civil society. Because you always have people that want to attack people and steal and use their strength. Uh, to suppress the weak and so on every civilized society has to have civil laws god gave the civil laws to israel for the government of the nation then he also gave to them ceremonial laws these were rules ordinances and rituals that he gave to them which were to be observed in the worship of god in the tabernacle first of all and later on in the temple and then of course you had the moral law the moral law dealt with their personal life and was based in the ten commandments Now, be careful, because a lot of Christians either fail to understand these distinctions, these different categories, and when they do, they begin to mix and therefore misinterpret these laws together, and the result is confusion and contradiction. Let me give you one example that I've heard over the years. People will come to me and say, well, look, why in Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, did God say, whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed? For in the image of God, he made man. And then God said in Exodus 20, verse 13, in the Ten Commandments, reading from the King James Version, you shall not kill. And people see this, many people see this as a confusing and an obvious contradiction. I mean, what what are you talking about? You got God saying at one point, you should kill people who kill other people. Then God says in Exodus 20 you shouldn't kill. So what do we got here? How do we reconcile? And this is why a lot of people see the Bible, it's just a full book full of contradictions, nobody can understand it. It's always contradicting itself. No, it's not. You just have to know how to interpret what God is saying. Look at the context. It's not hard to figure this out, to reconcile this. In Genesis chapter 9 verse 6, God is laying down a civil or a judicial law for society. He is giving human government, which he has established, because you got to have government if you're going to have peace and order. I mean, no government equals anarchy. Nobody survives in an anarchy. So God understood that if you're going to have civilized society, you have to have human government, and God gave human government the right of capital punishment, which means if people violate certain laws, and one of those would be to murder somebody, then that person forfeits their own right to life, because as God said in Genesis 9, 6, God made man in his image, life is precious. If somebody takes innocent life, they are to forfeit their life. That was a civil law, right? And then in Exodus 20, verse 13, God gave a moral law to govern the behavior of individuals in their personal lives. In fact, in Exodus 20, 13, It really shouldn't be translated, you shall not kill. The Hebrew is, you shall not murder. That's why in the newer translations, they all have changed that. Because they recognize God is not forbidding any taking of life. He's given civil government that right with regard to those who take life. And there's other crimes that fall into that category as well. But we are never to murder. God forbids it. In fact, I'll go as far as to say this. We're not to be vigilantes. We're not to take the life of somebody who is guilty of some crime because we think they deserve to die. We let the government handle that. We, we are not called by go- vengeance, is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. And he does that through the arm of government. Read Romans chapter 13. God has given the sword to government to execute those who violate certain laws. When you read your Bible, be sensitive to these distinctions, not just in this case, but every time. God's word does not contradict itself. It's our misconceptions and misunderstandings of his word that cause us to misinterpret things. This is what Jesus is dealing with here. He's trying to straighten out some of the warped thinking the Jews had gotten because of the bad teaching they had received over the many years uh, of the scribes and Pharisees' ministries. Now, over the next couple of weeks, we want to look at verses 17 through 20 carefully because they really lay the foundation for understanding the rest of this section, which, as I already said, runs to the end of chapter 5. Big section critical section to understand. And Jesus uh, lays out the groundwork. He prefaces it with these verses, 17 to 20. Therefore, I think we need to spend just a little extra time looking at them. But let's look at verses 17 and 18 once again. Jesus said, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy but to fulfill. For assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. You say, what is the jot and tittle stuff? Well, we'll talk about that next time. I just want you to focus primarily this morning though, on verse 17. Do not think that I came to destroy the law and prophets. I did not come to destroy but to fulfill. Notice this first of all, that even though Jesus said he had not come to destroy the law, he didn't say that the law would never pass away, did he? In fact, he said it would not pass away till all the law was fulfilled. And folks, this is where Old Testament law and New Testament Christianity intersect. Old Testament law and New Testament Christianity intersect right here. What do I mean by that? Well, many Christians are confused about their relation to the Old Testament laws because, let's face it, I don't know if they still apply to me. I'm a Christian now living you know in the New Testament. I mean, do these laws still apply to me? Well, depending on who you talk to, you get different answers to that, don't you? Many churches today teach that, as Christians, we are still under some of these laws, like the Sabbath. While the churches teach that Christ has set us free, we are no longer longer required to keep any of these laws. We now live by grace, and this is a complicated and controversial issue, and so I'd like to take, you know, the rest of our time this morning to look at the subject in the hopes of bringing some clarity to the confusion concerning the law's place in our lives as those living under the new covenant. Now, as I've already said, the law was given by God to the nation of Israel as the terms of the covenant that he was making with them through Moses. That's why it's referred to as the Mosaic Covenant. Let me tell you how it worked, all right? God brought his people out of Egypt into the wilderness. He brought them to the base of Mount Sinai, and he proposed a covenant with them. Here's what he said. I'm paraphrasing now. He said, look, I want to adopt you guys and make you my own special people. I want to make a great nation out of you. Here's the deal. If you will accept this covenant I want to make with you and keep the terms of the covenant, which were embodied in the law, and do all that I've commanded you to do, God says, I'm going to bless you beyond any nation on the face of the earth. I'll bless you with prosperity. I'll bless you with fruitfulness. I mean, God says, I will make you the most blessed nation that has ever existed. The people said, man, that sounds good. Okay, yeah, we'd like that. All right, sure. As long as we get the goodies and the blessings, Lord, yeah, we'll, we'll be your people. We'll do what you say. God says, fine, Moses, come up on top of the mountain, son. I'm going to give you the terms of the covenant, all right? So Moses goes up on top of Mount Sinai. You remember the story, right? I don't know what he's doing up there. The Lord's talking with him. They're having lunch. Forty days and nights passed. I don't know what's going on up there. The people grew what? Restless, didn't they? They twisted Aaron's arm to make them a golden calf, which they began to bow down and worship. So here's Moses on top of the mountain getting the terms of the covenant, the law, which they promised they were going to keep to be God's people, and already they're breaking those laws by worshiping the golden calf. That should have been a red flag. This was not going to go well. (laughs) Now, of course, when Moses came down, saw what they were doing, he took the tablets of the law and he broke them. And he stood and said, look, all these people, all you people who want to repent of this sin, and start really obeying God, you come over here, stand by me. And the whole bunch did. 3,000 did not. 3,000 wanted to live in rebellion against God. 3,000 wanted to do their own thing. And so the ground opened up and swallowed them, and they were judged, and they died. People say, that was horrible. Why would God do that? That's a terrible thing to do, kill people like that. Look, why do we think that we can disobey God, break his commandments, and still go to heaven? People think that today, don't they? They think that, look, as long as I don't go out there and do some of the worst crimes, murder people and all that, I can live with my boyfriend or girlfriend. I can steal from the company. I can do a lie and all these other things. And, you know, somehow that's not a big deal in God's mind, and certainly he'll let me into heaven. Well, see, that's the very issue that God was dealing with here. Here he had a group of people that wanted to rebel against the commandments of God. They had a chance to repent. They refused. So what was God supposed to do? He judged them. What is God supposed to do with rebels who refuse to repent? And obey what he has said he judges them and sends them to hell hell was not created for man by the way hell was created for the devil and his angels but you know what if you want to follow the devil in his rebellion God will let you follow him all the way to the place the devil is going to spend eternity is that God's fault is it God's fault that he extends his hand to you and says come to me I'll forgive you just come to me leave that life behind that life of sin and rebellion come to me Purpose to live for me. Accept my son as your savior. And I will take you to be with me. I'll make you my child. And they slap God's hand away and continue to live in rebellion. And then when judgment day comes, they want to blame God for being unloving? I don't think so. It doesn't work that way. So God judged them for their sin. 3,000 were killed on that day. And this began a long history of disobedience and judgment that spanned the next 700 years until God promised them through the prophet Jeremiah, first of all, that someday he was going to make a new covenant, not only with Israel, but with all those who would receive Israel's Messiah, who is really all of our Messiah, right? Jesus Christ. Listen to what God said to the prophet Jeremiah. He said, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not according to the covenant I made with their forefathers, when I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt, which covenant they broke, yeah, Yeah, before he even got off the mountain, they broke that covenant. He said, but this is what the new covenant is going to entail. I will put my law in their minds and write it in their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. And then the prophet Ezekiel, he affirmed this again. He said, I will give to you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. What is God saying? He's saying, look, I gave you external laws written on tablets of stone. How'd that work out for you? Didn't work so well, did it? I knew it wasn't going to work, but you didn't know that. You thought you could keep those commandments. I knew you couldn't. Now, are you ready for a new covenant? Because what I'm going to do is I'm not going to write my laws outwardly on tablets of stone. I'm going to write them inwardly on the tablet of your heart. What is that going to do? You're going to love me. You're going to want to obey me, not because you fear punishment, but because you love me with all your heart. See, this was the new covenant. Old covenant laws based on punishment if you disobeyed. New covenant, I love the Lord with all my heart. Man, I can't think of doing anything to hurt him. Man, I want to obey him. I want to just honor him. All because I love him. But this new covenant, folks, could not become a reality until God sent his son. Jesus Christ, the only one who could ever fulfill and did fulfill the law perfectly, he was born under the law. He grew up, you know, he was born without sin, right, as one under the law, the Son of God. He grew up, he observed all the laws of God, kept all the commandments, not once in his entire life did he ever violate one of God's commandments. He was tempted in every way we are, yet without sin. And because Jesus was able to live the perfect life, He now turns to the rest of us as fallen sinners and says, look, to get into heaven, you have to be perfect. You can't be perfect, but I am perfect. And if you give your heart to me and make me your Lord and Savior, I will give you my righteousness by faith. I will make you perfect through your faith and therefore worthy of heaven because of what I did, not because of what you do. But in verse 17, I just want to focus in on one word for the rest of our time this morning. It's the last word in verse 17, the word fulfill. Jesus said, Do not think I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy but to fulfill. The word fulfill is a Greek word that means to complete. It means to fulfill in the sense of perfectly keeping. Perfectly keeping. Jesus fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law, something that none of us could ever do. He was born sinless. He lived a perfect, sinless life. He never disobeyed the Father in one area at any time in his life. He lived the perfect life. He fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law. And once we receive him as our Lord and Savior, the Bible says we are placed in Christ. In Christ. In fact, now that God looks at us as Christians, he doesn't even see us. He sees Christ. We are hidden in Christ, the Bible says. So as God the Father looks at us, he actually sees Christ. And now I'm as righteous as Jesus, and therefore I'm no longer under the law of Moses, because as Jesus fulfilled the law, since I'm in Christ, I have fulfilled it too. It's hard for some people to understand. So you say you're perfect? No, I I still blow it. But positionally, as God looks at me and you who are Christians, we are in Christ. So positionally, we are as righteous, as perfect, as blameless, as holy as Jesus is. Now, practically, uh uh-uh. I still live in a body of flesh. I I still carry around a fallen nature. And the goal of our Christianity is sanctification, becoming more and more like Jesus every day. But when we talk about righteousness now, righteousness is only in Christ. And once I'm in Christ by faith, As God sees me, he sees Jesus, and as he sees me in Christ, and as such I'm as righteous and as perfect as Jesus. I'm not under the law of Moses anymore. Since Jesus fulfilled the law, I have fulfilled it now too. But listen to me, that doesn't mean that I'm now allowed by God to live a lawless life either. You see, as Christians living under the new covenant, we don't obey because of commandments written on tablets of stone. We obey from the heart. Because the Lord Jesus Christ lives in our hearts through the indwelling Holy Spirit who has written his laws on our hearts. And as such, we want to obey the Lord because we love him. The law said you obey, you're going to be punished. And sometimes punished with death if you violate certain laws. The New Testament, the New Covenant says, look, you're in Christ now. He has made you righteous. Now, obey God because you love him. Didn't Jesus say, if you love me, keep my commandments? You see, the New Testament says that as Christians, we are not under the law of Moses, but we are under a greater law, the law of love, which is not really a law, but that's how James is phrasing it. All right, He's using a play on words, a little take on the law of Moses, and say, look, we're not under the law of Moses, but we are under a greater law, the law of love, which he calls in chapter 2, verse 8, the royal law. Why does he call it the royal law? Because as kids of the king, as the king's kids, this is how we operate. We don't operate. As children of Israel, under laws which bring punishment, we operate under the principle of grace that God loves us and has saved us by his grace, and now we respond by obeying him out of love. That's what it means. And by that token, I mean, guys, the law of love is far superior to the law of Moses. Think about this. The Ten Commandments say you shall not steal. All right, under the Mosaic law, I would be punished for stealing what belonged to someone else. But the law of Moses couldn't force me to share with another what belonged to me. See, the law of love or the royal law does both. If I'm a Christian, not only am I not going to want to take what belongs to you, but I'm going to want to share with you what belongs to me if you have need. The law can't do that, can it? The law can't tell you to take something that belongs to you that you've earned and to give it to somebody else. Well, wait a minute now. That's changing in our country. It's called socialism, isn't it? So the government feels it can take what you've, heard, what you've earned and give it to somebody else. Is there any love involved in that, though, on your part? How do you feel about that? feel all warm and fuzzy inside when the government takes your hard-earned money and gives it to somebody else? What does that make you feel? Resentful, angry, right? The Christianity doesn't do that because God puts it in my heart. I want to share. See, the government can impose laws. Only God can work through love. That's what we're talking about, aren't we? And that's why the royal law is superior to the law of Moses. The first is rooted in the heart based on love, and the other, the law of Moses, consisted of external laws based on punishment. And that's why when Jesus said to his disciples, if you love me, keep my commandments, he wasn't talking about the law of Moses there, of course. Because what he had just gotten done teaching them in the upper room had nothing to do with the law of Moses. It was something brand new. Remember what he said in John 13, verses 34 and 5. He said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have fervent love as the Greek fervent love for one another. Again, this has nothing to do with the law of Moses. In fact, the law of Moses is even mentioned there. This was something brand new. It was a reference to the fact that the new covenant had come and replaced the old covenant under Moses. Again, it's a reference to the fact that through the new birth, God now writes his laws in our hearts once we're saved, and we want to obey him now out of love, not out of fear of punishment. And this means that we are no longer under the Ten Commandments as a way of being righteous before God. We now keep these commandments because in doing so, they become a fruit of our love for God. Let me just end with this. Some people will say at this point, yes, but what about keeping the Sabbath? I'm hearing more and more people who are Christians who are getting some kind of teaching somewhere where they think that they still have to live under certain laws, and the Sabbath is one of those laws. And in all fairness to them, I don't think most of them believe that you have to keep these laws to get to heaven, but they believe once you're saved, you have to keep them to really be sanctified. So they're bringing the law in to the Christian life and trying to marry grace with law, and it doesn't work. Are Christians under the Sabbath law? Let's just focus on the Sabbath for a second. Well, the Sabbath was the sign of the Mosaic covenant. Every covenant God made has a sign attached to it. You go back in the Old Testament, you have the Noahic covenant. What is the symbol? God said, I will never again judge the earth with a flood. What was the symbol or the sign of that covenant? The rainbow. God later on made a covenant with Abraham that he and his descendants would inherit the land of promise. What was the sign of the Abrahamic covenant? Circumcision. The sign of the Mosaic covenant was the Sabbath. Now listen to what God said, and again, I'm only taking two verses out of many. Leviticus 25 verse 2, God said, speak to the children of Israel, I've underlined that, and say to them, when you Israel, come into the land which I give you, then the land shall keep the Sabbath to the Lord. When you, Israel, come into the land I have promised to give you, then you'll keep the Sabbath. Exodus 31, verse 16. Therefore the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath to observe the Sabbath throughout their generations as a perpetual covenant. And people say, well, wait a minute. But God said, remember the Sabbath. He said that in Exodus 20, verse 8. Remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. Isn't that something God is telling all of us to do as Christians now? Remember the Sabbath? Well, first of all, who was He talking to when He said that? Was He talking to the church? No, He was talking to Israel, wasn't He? Talking to Israel. The context is very important, isn't it? So God was talking to Israel when He said, Remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. Folks, nowhere in the New Testament is the church ever commanded to keep the Sabbath. On the contrary, in Paul's day... There were a group of Jews called the Judaizers who were going around trying to undo the good teaching that Paul had given to these Gentile churches. And Paul was basically teaching them that to be saved you just to have to believe in Jesus, right? It's salvation by grace alone through faith alone. After Paul would leave town, the Judaizers would slip in. These were probably Pharisees that thought they were Christians but believed If a Gentile was going to be saved, they had to first be circumcised, keep the law of Moses, then they could exercise faith in Christ and go to heaven. And Paul was vehemently opposed to that teaching. In fact, that was one of the reasons the first church council was convened in Acts chapter 15, the Jerusalem council. But listen to what Paul says in Colossians 2, verses 16 to 17. Now, he's talking to a Gentile church, talking to Gentile Christians where these Judaizers were trying to put them under the law of Moses and were condemning them for not keeping the Jewish feast days and the Sabbaths and so on. Listen to what Paul says in verse 16 of Colossians 2. So let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substances of what? Christ. A shadow doesn't have substance, does it? But... Only something of substance can cast a shadow, can it? In the Old Testament, all these things pointed to Jesus. The feast days, the uh, Sabbaths, the sacrificial system in the, in the temple and tabernacle, they all pointed to Jesus. He said, the volume of the book, it is written of me. So all these things pointed to Jesus. They were shadows of what was to come. He was the reality. He was the substance. Once you have the substance, you don't live in the shadow anymore, do you? If the feasts of, of Israel and the Sabbaths and all these other things pointed to Christ, once you have Christ, who is the fulfillment of these things, what do you have to still fool around with them for? No, don't get me wrong. A lot of Christians will have uh, satyrs, okay, in their churches. And they have these because Passover meal, right? And they'll have these because they can point out now how each of the elements of the seder pointed to Christ. I have no problem with that. That's great. If you look at... Observing, though, these feasts as a way to earn God's favor, you're in trouble now. But Paul says, look, don't let anyone judge you with regard to the Sabbaths. Christ Christ is our Sabbath. Read Hebrews chapter 4, right? Christ is our Sabbath. Paul made that clear also in Galatians, that we are not under the law of Moses, that we are Free from those laws because Christ fulfilled the law. Christ is, in fact, our Sabbath rest. For the Christian who is in Christ, listen, every day is a day of Sabbath rest, isn't it? Why do you think God took six days to create the world and the seventh day he rested? I mean, couldn't he create the whole universe in a microsecond? Why did he take six days? And then why did he rest in the seventh? Was he tired? No, he did it to lay down a practical principle for Israel, first of all, and that is you work six days. You're farmers. You work hard in the fields. You've got to work six days. Take a day off. Your body needs to recover. Use that day just to draw close to me and spend time with me. Worship me, right? Commune with me. But you have to take a day off because your body needs to rest. That was the principle God laid down through the six days of creation, seventh day was the day of rest. But they pointed spiritually, well, for 6,000 years, practically, man has been striving to earn God's favor, whoever he defines that God to be. There is coming a seventh, 1,000-year period called the Millennial Kingdom where we're going to take that off, and we're going to have Christ here with us physically on the earth. But in a more general sense, guys, what it says is that all the years man has tried to struggle to earn God's favor through all these works of the law or religious rituals, and, of course, we, we did those things because we wanted to be righteous. When Christ came, he was totally righteous. And we put our faith in him. His righteousness is given to us. Therefore, we now rest from our labors. We're not working to get into heaven anymore. Oh, I obey God because I love him, but I know that my salvation is not a reward for my works. It is a gift of his grace. So I every day becomes a Sabbath rest, Right. As a Christian, we, re- we rest every day of the, of the week in the sense that we're not striving to get into heaven now. We're just thanking God He saved us. You know, Every day is a day of worship and, and communion. I mean, I see that. You know, you're driving in the car, you're worshiping the Lord, aren't you? I mean, I've seen many people worshiping the Lord in their cars, you know, going at it, you know, and one lady was sticking her finger out the window. I, I could hear this. I could hear this. I was right behind her in the car. I could hear the song. She had the radio cranked up. I knew it was a Christian song. Had the bumper stickers on her back. And she's praising the Lord, you know. Hey, amen. Amen. That was a Tuesday or something. I don't know. She was worshiping the Lord. (laughs) Look, if we were really under the Sabbath as New Testament Christians, then I don't understand why Paul would have said this in Romans chapter 14, verses 5 and 6. He said, One person esteems one day above another. Another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day, observes it to the Lord. He who does not observe the day, to the Lord he does not observe it. What is Paul saying? He's saying some people like to single out one day and make that a special day of worship. Fine, Paul says. You want to do that? There's nothing wrong with that. Other people say, no, every day for me is a special day of worship. That's great too, Paul said. Whatever your conviction is. Because you're both trying to do it to please the Lord, okay? But look. If the Sabbath law was still in effect and applicable to us in the church age, Paul would never have taken such a lax attitude towards those who didn't esteem that one day above all the others, right? If the Sabbath was still in effect and still was that important, Paul would never have said, look, you want to take every day alike? fine. No, you said, look, you got to esteem one day above all the others. That's the Sabbath. It's got to be holy. He didn't say that, did he? Because in Paul's mind, every day was a Sabbath rest because we were resting in Christ's completed work and worshiping God from the heart every day of the week. In fact, when the church was born right from the very beginning, they did not worship the Lord on the Sabbath, which was Saturday. When did they worship the Lord? Sunday, right? Sunday, the first day of the week, which they called the Lord's Day because Jesus rose from the dead on that day. If the Sabbath was still in effect, guys, they would have been worshiping God on the Sabbath, wouldn't they? Alright, look, we're done. Let me just say this, okay, and I'll let you guys go. Um, I'm a little over time. Thanks for your patience. Um, uh, you know, and I, I really have to apologize to some of you folks who are new with us. You're thinking, man, I just wanted to come hear a simple message. <laughs> you know, I just I just came, feeling a little down. I just was hoping, you know, to sit here and hear a nice, simple, uplifting message. And the guy's hitting me with all this stuff. I'm reaching for the Tylenol. i got a pounding headache now. <laughs> Look, I apologize. You know, we're just going verse by verse, right? And when you go through God's word verse by verse, you will come to many wonderful, simple, uplifting, devotional messages. We'll get there, all right? They're coming. But you will also hit the deeper things of God, things that we don't tend to think about so much, things that maybe tax our brain power a little bit, make us uncomfortable because we've got to use so much mental energy, and we would rather just bypass those issues, right? Right? But see, if you do that, you always remain in a kind of a stunted spiritual state. It's the deeper things of God that force us out of our comfort zones, get us to think about things, study the word more carefully, to know what God has really said about issues, that we can articulate our faith to those who are unbelievers, right? Because that's what we're supposed to do. We're we're supposed to be able to, to intelligently, articulately, but humbly give people a reason for the hope that is in us. And this is why it's important. And I realize you're thinking, man, I'll never use this stuff. You're using it right now. There is nothing more basic, folks, than how do I get to heaven? You know people are saying? You get to heaven by doing all these religious works, keeping 613 commandments. Aren't you glad? Jesus said, forget about all that. I'll tell you what. I'll take the 613. Jesus said, I'll just whittle them down to two. All right? right. Two thou shalt, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Do these two. The rest of the law takes care of itself. And you'll only do those things if you have Jesus in your heart, right? There's nothing more basic than how to get to heaven, guys. If we stumble at this point, we, we stumble big time. And nothing in the scriptures is going to make sense if we don't nail this down. So hang in there, okay? These next few verses as we nail them down, it's going to give you a framework from which to understand the rest of the chapter and, in fact, the entire New Testament body of revelation that we have in our laps. God has got many things to teach us that will benefit us greatly in our walk with Him. Father, we thank You so much for Your Word. And yes, Lord, there are things that Our deep doctrinally things that maybe we don't really want to wrestle with, and oh, we just rather just bypass, leave it for the theologians and the pastors. I don't need it. Well, Lord, help us to show ourselves approved unto you, workmen who do not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. We need to know these things, Lord. We don't want to be shallow Christians, you know, stuck in kindergarten spiritually. We want to grow and develop and mature in our understanding of your word. And so, Lord, give us grace. We ask all this in your precious name, Lord Jesus. Amen.